Now this morning I want us to think about Jesus' second coming, his coming again, which hasn't happened yet, that we are anticipating. Uh, And this evening we'll think more about Jesus' first coming, his coming that's already happened, so kind of back to front. So this morning his second coming, this evening uh, his first. I know we're getting close to Christmas, uh, as we were saying earlier, and people start to feel uh, warm and fluffy feelings at this time of year. But just to bring you back to earth with a bump... Uh, Let me ask a question of you. When you look at the world today, I wonder what's the first word that comes to mind. When you look at the state of the world, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Maybe it's that, oh, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Sin. Sin, yeah, we do live in a world that's full of sin, don't we? Yeah. Maybe that it's confused. We live in a confused world or a chaotic world, one that's full of suffering, something similar, a world that's full of sin. We don't live in a nice world, in a world that's sick is the kind of world we live in. There are all sorts of problems, political problems, infighting over what kinds of laws should or shouldn't be made and whether or not the government may have broken its own laws. There are injustices, there's persecution, there's relationship breakdown, there's environmental breakdown, there's the new COVID variant. There's all other kinds of diseases. There's always a war going on somewhere. And on top of that, there's also the sickness inside of us, our own sins that keep coming up again and again. But this kind of world that's full of sin is exactly the sort of world that Isaiah is called to preach to because it is, after all, the same world uh, that we live in. Isaiah is based in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah and he's been told to preach by God to the nation. But he's been told they won't listen to him. In chapter 6, we see that where um, God is looking for someone. And as I says, send me. Here I am, send me. And then God says to him, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, and so on. He's got a hard calling to preach to a sinful world that won't listen. And instead, Judah will not listen and will go into exile. They will be judged by Babylon, just like the northern kingdom of Israel had with Assyria. And throughout Isaiah, the countries, Israel and Judah and the nations around, are pictured like big trees that are diseased at the core and they need to be chopped down. Judah also is going to be chopped down just like Israel was chopped down by Assyria. You see that in chapter 10, where uh, God uh, talks about the destruction that's going to come uh, to Assyria for their arrogance, or to Lebanon as well. And with all these nations being destroyed, with Judah failing to be God's people in any meaningful way, to keep his law, to stay faithful to him, as they keep running after any uh, other gods, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Is there any hope that God's people might actually be saved? Is there any hope that the nations might come to Israel and hear about the true God and not just a replication of their own gods? The answer in chapter 11 is yes, there's hope. There's definitely hope. Despite all the gloom in the early chapters of Isaiah, there is hope. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Judah, this stump, this tree stump that has been chopped down, new life will come forward from it. 
says. We sang about it just now, about uh, the branch stemming from the stump of Jesse. A, a branch that will bear fruit. There is new life that will come, God says through Isaiah. Someone is coming who will right these wrongs. And we'll see this morning that that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the person Isaiah speaks about here is a king that we need. He's the kind of judge that we need and he brings the restoration we need. And he's the one to whom eventually all the nations will come for worship and for rest. So first of all, let's think about Jesus, the king we need. Jesus is the king we need. Everyone seems to have a good idea of what makes a good leader, don't they? In whatever field, think about politics or football managers, um, etc. Maybe people have opinions over what makes a good monarch, particularly when you're talking about whether or not Prince Charles will do a good job when um, his mother eventually moves aside. What criteria are people looking for? Maybe someone who's impartial, someone who can strategize over the long term, whatever it is. But people don't usually say, we need someone who's full of the Spirit of God. But that's the kind of king Isaiah says we need. And the kind of king that we will receive. Verse 2 and verse 3. This shoot coming out from the stump of Jesse, this branch, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. All throughout the Old Testament, the kings of Israel have the Spirit of God resting on them so that they can rule in a way that God is pleased with. It's meant to, among other things, to to show the people, to show the king, that they can't rule in their own power and do a good job. They need God to enable them to rule in a way that he is pleased with. But all of those kings, in some way or another, end up failing. There are some who fail spectacularly, who don't really ever seem to get off the mark. But even think of David with Bathsheba. Things go wrong. Think of Solomon with all of his... Wives, Even Ahaz, uh, a couple of chapters earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 7, uh, he's just not willing to hear God's word when he speaks to him. But this king, Isaiah describes, won't fail. He won't fail. This king will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He'll be able to see to the heart of an issue and know exactly what to do. He'll have the spirit of counsel and might. He would give good advice, good counsel, and have the power to actually do what needs to be done. Most importantly, he'll have the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And verse 3, he'll, he'll delight in knowing and fearing God. This is not the kind of king who will fail. The kind of king who will always relate to God in the right way. Who'll always love his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus identifies himself as this king in Luke chapter 4. He's reading from another part of Isaiah, uh, which begins with these words, the spirit of the Lord is on me. And then he sits down to give the teaching and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am this king, Jesus says, that you were waiting for, that has now arrived. Jesus is this king that we need, and he's the king that we want, whether or not we want to admit that that's the case. It's nice to think of ourselves as being in charge, of me being in charge of all of my own affairs and controlling my life nice and neatly. But other than anything else, I would hope the last two years have taught us all that that's not true. (laughs) Something uh, smaller that we can't see has just completely changed the way that we do all sorts of things, including church, over the last two years. But maybe we still like to think that we can solve 
the world's problems and solve our own as well. But we can't. There are so many things that we cannot control and that we are not uh, in control of. We need someone, firstly, to rule over us and someone who is able to make us willing and able to serve God. We need a wise king, a powerful king who knows what to do and can actually do it, who is really in control and not just wishes they were in control like us. We need someone who's wise. You don't want someone to be in complete control who's unwise, who doesn't know what they're doing, who has the power to do what needs to be done but doesn't really know what needs to be done. So, in the words of the psalm, don't put your trust in chariots or horses. Don't think you're putting your trust in chariots and horses. You don't really use those. Don't put your trust in politicians or in ideals or whatever. Instead, put your trust in the name of the Lord your God. Trust in Jesus, the king that we need. Secondly, though, Jesus is the judge that we need. Jesus is the judge that we need. Justice is meant to be blind, isn't she? There's that... Um, statue on top of the old bailey of sword in one hand scales in the other and she's blindfolded the reason for that is that our eyes can deceive us can't they we can see what we want to see our ears can deceive us and we can hear what we want to hear and not the truth and sadly that does mean sometimes that justice isn't done in the courts that have justice um, above them terrible injustices can and do take place people go to prison when they shouldn't have so it's good then isn't it to hear about a judge in Isaiah here who doesn't judge by what his eyes see verse 3 or decide disputes by what his ears hear it doesn't mean that he's a judge who doesn't look at any evidence it doesn't mean that he's made up his mind before he even gets into the courtroom he knows and understands all the details of every case that he judges no, but he's the kind of judge who judges, first of all, with righteousness for the poor, who decides with equity for the meek. In other words, he's not the kind of judge you can bribe. You can't pull the wool over his eyes and trick him into making a bad judgment. And he always knows what the right thing is to do, what the just thing is to do. And not only does he see the things we do, he also knows our every thought, our every desire, our every inclination that we never express with our mouths. And that's not immediately a comforting thought, is it? That there is someone who knows you so completely to know every one of your thoughts as well as everything that's ever come out of your mouth. And that all those things will one day be recounted before Jesus, who is your judge. And what are we told will happen when Jesus the judge comes? He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Sinners get destroyed. And we can be sure that will happen because Jesus is a righteous and faithful God who follows through on his word. The problem is that we all deserve to suffer under this kind of judgment. We're all of us like Judah, like Israel, like Assyria, like diseased trees that ought to be cut down. How can we be sure then that we won't be struck down when Jesus comes? Well, because Jesus the judge came to earth to suffer our judgment in our place. Because Jesus the judge came to be judged in our place at the cross. One of the reasons that Christmas is so great is that we, we celebrate the fact that the Son of God has become one of us. He's become a human just like us. 
became one of us so that we can truly call him our brother. He's one of us. And he became one of us so that he could serve the Father perfectly by the power of his spirit, like you and I never have, in our place. He became one of us so he could die as our representative, as our substitute. He punished for us on the cross, take our sin on himself. Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He became one of us so that we could be raised to new life with him in his resurrection. Became one of us so that we can be reconciled to God and not have to face his judgment. It's good news that Jesus, the judge, has come to take your punishment and that that's already been done. That you don't need to add anything to it or do anything yourself, but come to him and turn away from your sin and trust instead in Jesus, the judge, who was judged in your place. And what happens, we're told, when we turn to Jesus is there's some other tree imagery in Romans, is that we get grafted into a good tree. We were, we were part of this diseased tree that needed to be chopped down. Instead, we've been taken off that and planted into a good tree where we can be nursed back to health and be fruitful. And because Jesus is the judge that's coming again, it really matters how we respond to him now. It matters that we turn away from our sins and towards him now before he comes again. Jesus tells us, doesn't he, that not everyone will turn to him in faith. He says in Matthew's gospel, he will say on that day to some, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. To others, he will say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So it matters now how we respond to Jesus, that we might be those who he says, come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, and not those who are told to depart from him. It can be a difficult pill for us to swallow to know that there is a kind of ju- this kind of judgment coming. But we need to know this is completely necessary if we want to live in a world without sin. If we want to live in a world that's not desperately sick to its core. If we want to live in the kind of world Uh, that verses six to nine describe, which we'll look at in a minute, we need a judgment like verses four and five. We'll be familiar with those uh, parts from Revelation that we read earlier, about God being with his people, uh, seeing his face, living before his throne, all those good things of death being no more, no more crying, all those things. But in chapter 20 of Revelation before that, there's the judgment. The devil and his angels are thrown into the fire and those who don't trust in Christ along with them. For this world to be remade, sin needs to be completely destroyed. And we know that, don't we? Not only that there's sin within us that needs to go, but that there are sins out in the world too. There are corrupt rulers, there are broken relationships, there are people who are murderous, who are selfish, who are greedy, who are arrogant, all the rest of it. And all of it has to go. It has to go. If you worry at this point for those you know who don't know Jesus, invite them to come to him. Invite them to come to him. Let them know that the day is coming when Christ will return and that it matters how they respond to him now, to turn from their sins towards Christ in faith. Jesus then is the king we need, he's the judge we need, but he brings the restoration that we need. 
Look at verses six to nine again. It shows us the result of Jesus' judgment is this new creation. I don't think it matters very much whether or not this is a, a very literal account of exactly how the new creation will look, but you understand the idea, don't you? Why do wolves usually look for lambs? Not usually to dwell with them, to live with them. Okay. Why do leopards look for young goats? Presumably not to snuggle with them and lie down, like it says in verse 6. Lions don't eat straw, do they? Cows and bears generally don't graze together. It's not a good idea. Why? Well, because the relationship is of predator and prey. But in verses 6 to 9, that's not how it works anymore. These wolves look, to, look for sheep to live with them. These leopards look for goats to rest with them. It's not like watching one of those David Attenborough uh, documentaries where you, everything looks good and peaceful and you're just waiting for it to turn. <laughs> you know, that whatever animal it is that you've become unreasonably attached to in the last five minutes is going to be devoured by something horrible. It's not like that. It's a harmonious world. It's an upside down world where I'm sure every parent in the room uh, feels uh, very uh, scared when you think about a little child leading a lion and a calf together. Or think of a nursing child, not even a child that can walk, playing over a cobra's hole. And then once the child is weaned, oh, you can put your hands in the adder's den then, now that you're a bit older. You wouldn't think of doing that in this world, but in that world it's possible. It's not the kind of world that you will want. Not that you necessarily want your children to put their hands into snake stems. But you get the idea. One where there's no discord. A world where there's no death. A world where you don't need to be afraid. A world where there's no danger. How do we get that kind of world? How does it come to us? Does it come through diplomacy, through politics, through just being good people? No. Verse 9. Why does it happen? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, full, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It comes from knowing God. It comes from knowing God. There won't be anyone anywhere in the new creation that you can find who doesn't know him. That's why it says elsewhere in Isaiah, on that day, you will not turn to your neighbour and say, know the Lord, for they will all know me. You'll never be wronged again. You'll never be sick again. You'll never lose a loved one again. You'll never have to confess your sins again. You'll never be ashamed again. You'll be with God in his place, on the Lord's mountain, the place where he lives. And you'll see him face to face and be totally free from sin forever. It's the kind of peace that we long for, doesn't it? Isn't it? The kind of world that we want to live in. So let's pray for God's kingdom to come and for people to know the Lord through Jesus who died in their place so that they too can enjoy this on the day when Jesus comes again. Because the very last thing I want us to see is that Jesus calls in verse 10 the whole world, the nations, to worship him and to rest in him. It's not just Judah, it's not just Israel that gets to enjoy this day. No, it says, on that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, to him shall the nations of the nations shall inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. It's not just for Israel, but for the nations, 
for us all, for people like me and you. I presume most of us are not um, ethnically Jewish. And we need to know as well that it's interesting at this point that it's not just the shoot of Jesse now, not just a, a bit of life coming out from a stump that looked dead, but he's also the root of Jesse. <laughs> he's both the one who planted the tree and the one who comes from the tree. And Jesus in uh, reading from Revelation 22 identifies himself as that one, the root of David, he said there, the descendant of David as well. And there's been one other point in Isaiah uh, where uh, a banner or a signal has been raised, depending on your translation, for the nations to run to. In chapter 5, verse 26, uh, he'll raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And there God is whistling for the nations to come to his signal for Israel to be destroyed. Here it's very different. The, the nations are coming to the Lord's signal not to destroy God's people, but because they are God's people. It's just like Peter says in his letter, once they were not a people, now, on that day, they are the people of God. Once they had not received mercy, now they have received mercy. On that day when Christ returns, people from all over the world will be welcomed into God's kingdom, will be with him forever. You among them will worship him and enjoy rest in him forever. As, if, as Christians here this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus, you've been made part of God's people. You've been grafted into this tree of Israel. You've been grafted in, among other reasons, so that you can tell the nations, the people around you who don't know him, what Christ has done for you. So in the words of Psalm 96, you can declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all the peoples. So this Christmas, as people are thinking about um, Christian things, perhaps a bit more than, than usual, call people to come to Jesus, to worship him. Not only is the child in the manger who came to become one of them, but the child who grew up and who one day will rule over all things, who will be the banner for the peoples to whom they can come for worship and for rest. But before Christ comes, before the world is remade, before this comes, life is hard. Things are difficult. And maybe Christmas will be not just filled of warm and fuzzy feelings, as I said earlier, but it'll be difficult for you for all sorts of reasons. If that's you, just know that there is hope of a brighter future. There is hope of a brighter future. I was saying to the children earlier, no one enjoys waiting. It's so difficult to wait, especially when you know the good thing is coming, but not yet. It's difficult for us to be patient and to wait, but there is hope for this brighter future. That one day sin and all its effects will be utterly destroyed. One day all things will be made new. And we know that that is coming because that process has started now. That people are already being made new by God the Holy Spirit. People are turning from their sins towards Jesus in faith. You are slowly, gradually, but surely being changed to be more and more like Jesus. So we can trust that God's promises are true, that he will return as he has promised. Until that day, let's grieve that there's the sin in us and in the world around us that we see. Pray for his kingdom to come, so that finally, eventually, one day, justice will be done. The right thing will be done. I will enjoy peace with him forever.